think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is the Boys in Short Pants, episode 27, the 28th episode. Uh, we are back from summer hiatus. Uh, who knows for how long? Uh, hopefully, we'll be back to weekly weekly episodes at this point. But uh, who knows? Things uh, things get busy, especially uh, with this leadership race kind of wrapping up. Things soon. get busy, and there has to be interesting things going on in the house to talk about. Yeah, so. uh, which I never follow because I just like I'm basically like Etienne it, is basically just like uh, will tell me the news. Like he'll just uh, call me on my like rotary phone, uh, where it's, I sit in my isolation tank doing campaign stuff. And he'll say, Laurent, here's what happened today. And then I'll make a joke or two and then, like, scribble it down for the next podcast. That's sort of the routine these days. But, yeah, hopefully we'll get back to, to regular episodes. So, yeah, a lot has happened since uh, the last time uh, we, we spoke uh, when I said correctly that there would be no summer cabinet shuffle. And it was indeed fall. Was it? Uh, when that when, happened. When, sorry, was the fall? It was uh, the last week of August, which I think, you know, if you look at the leaves and you sort of felt it on the wind, by the, then it was The fall. leaves, it's like 30 degrees out, everyone's got their AC on in Ottawa, it is definitely still summer well, by this, this anyone's is, account. On the other hand, my heating in uh, my apartment was on the other week because it was like 9 degrees and there was a frost advisory, so... Uh, so was mm. that pre or post cabinet shuffle? It's like you post. Oh, yeah. look, so yeah. it's not even relevant. Well, I'm Out just, of order. It's fall, it's fall, damn it. There was a frost advisory almost like day of, actually, in New Brunswick, where I was at the time. So, for anyone keeping count, that is now two times Laurent has been wrong on uh, clear and obvious predictions. Uh, I'm pretty sure I'm right on that one. Anyway, uh, so the Cabinet Shuffle did happen, whether it happened in fall or summer, though it was obviously fall. Uh, and I guess we'll, we'll talk about it, because it was uh, there were some interesting elements to it that I think are worth highlighting. Yeah, admittedly, we are a little late to this one. Yeah, well, that's the nature of having one guy sort of doing campaign stuff. So, sort of the instigator for the cabinet shuffle was that you had a minister effectively resign from cabinet. Indeed. Judy Foote had uh, taken quite a leave of absence and in her place as, or sorry, a leave of absence from her position as Minister of Public uh, Service and Procurement. The most uh, fun department. Formerly PWGSC. And uh, Minister of Natural Resources, Jim Carr, had been taking over um, and doing do- yeah. Double duty I guess for a while. Resources is just pretty quiet these days. Who knows? Quieter. I mean, her, that portfolio is an absolute train wreck, and it has Which been one? procurement or natural resources. Procurement. Yeah, yeah, has been an absolute train wreck for years, uh, with everything from Phoenix to yeah. military procurement going through it. It has been at the center of a lot of disasters for both this government and the previous one. Um, so it was definitely in need of a full-time minister and yeah. proper ministerial attention. Well, in general, like, those are two, like, full-size departments. You, I mean, this isn't the days of, like, C.D. Howe anymore, where you could just have one guy running the government. Uh, no, like, you can't do it anymore. Yeah. yeah. So they swapped him out, or, yeah, so they swapped him out, they swapped her out, and they shuffled, I think it was four departments in total. Yes, I think that's um, right. So health got a new minister. Yes. Um, Petit Pas Taylor. Jeanette Petit Pas Taylor of uh, uh, Moncton Riverview, Dieppe. Previous parliamentary secretary to the Minister of Finance, marking the second person in this liberal government uh, to graduate from that position to full minister. Yeah. The first one being Philippe Champagne. Uh, François-Philippe Champagne. François-Philippe Champagne. A lot of names with both of these ministers. Yes, well, they're the francophones. <laughs> and, you know, as they said... Uh, Bilingual today, French tomorrow. So she's taken over that. Um, we had Minister Qualtro 
um, who has now taken the public works and procurement portfolio. Public services. Public services. He used to be called public works and government. Government P- services. PWGSC. Yeah, everything I, changes names in government like all the time. Ottawa is just like a constantly shifting Rubik's cube of like different acronyms, and it's just a lot of people will still use acronyms for from like a decade ago. Like GAC was formerly DFAT D, and before which is that way it worse was than GAC. DFATE, and before that, at least one branch of it was CEDA. And some people still call themselves CETA people within the department. So yeah. it's like... It's very healthy. Yeah. A, a decade hasn't changed uh, the way people self-identify within GAC. Sorry, I'm getting off track. Um, so uh, the other notable change was that Minister Philpott, former Minister of Health, is now going to be co-ministers of the department formerly known as INAC. Um, also formerly I? known... Yeah, Indi- Indigenous INAC. and Northern Affairs yeah. Canada. Also formerly known as like five other names. Aboriginal Affairs and Northern Development most recently, I guess. Indian Affairs at one point. It it has a long history. Um, Which was, at least, one of the largest departments uh, in the government. And is now being split into two pieces with a view to um, one half being focused on treaties. And that's under uh, Minister Bennett still. And then the other one is focused on program delivery. Yeah. And that's under Minister Phil Pods. Yes, and it's important to understand that a lot of Indigenous programming actually is delivered through Health Canada. There's the First Nations and the Health Branch, among other things. Uh, the Non-Insured Health Benefits uh, Program, all this stuff is sort of within Health Canada. Uh, I've gotten to learn a lot about this over the last couple of months. Um, but yeah, so that, that's its own, like, that. it makes sense to have someone with experience delivering those programs going into that portfolio. On the other hand, if you want my personal opinion, which, I mean, otherwise, why, why are you here? Uh, I think if you're separating out the sort of like treaty obligations and the delivery of services, I think you're kind of missing the point because the delivery of services in large part is a treaty obligation and an important part of reconciliation is actually like doing what the government says it's going to do. So I think artificially, I understand that there is a point of view where like these are incredibly big jobs and like having two capable people at the helm will make a difference. On the other hand, like I think you have the what happens in government when you split things is that it silos. Uh, you can have the best of intentions, but that's usually just what happens. It's the nature of public service for that to happen, or at least our public service. Um, and I think that's not going to really change anything significant. But that's my take. I'll put an alternative uh, opinion out there, not necessarily mine, because I don't have a strong opinion on the matter, um, is that I, I think the intent behind the split was to sort of separate long-term issues versus short-term issues where uh, the renegotiation of treaties and the negotiation of treaties is often an ongoing long process. Yeah. As opposed to service delivery is very immediate. It's in here now. It's putting out fires. It's dealing with crises. And so when you have those both in one department, under one minister, under one deputy minister, under one chain of command you'll find the short-term issues taking up a lot of the oxygen. Yeah, which makes sense. But on the other hand... And the other one... And the other is being put on the back burner. So this this is a way to... uh, An attempt, at least, to split them and have them both get equal airtime. Yeah. From what I've learned about INAC, though, is that fundamentally the solution is to just, like, root and branch, tear it up, because it is doing... It's, like, it's not reformable. Uh, It is just such a fundamentally flawed department uh, with such fundamentally flawed programs that it just needs to, like, not exist anymore. But... Uh, like I'll, they're not going to go there. Well, naturally, I think um, what's interesting timing-wise on this is it comes two years into the liberal mandate. Yeah, 
um, which is sort of their way of saying, you know, we've tried to, like, I, I believe that Trudeau has a genuine interest, and clearly all, all signs have pointed towards this, of working towards reconciliation. Or a jean jacket when it was <laughs> the teepee that one time, remember? That was uh, and powerful. prioritizing um, indigenous issues to the best of his ability. And so he sort of tried things for two years. Okay, I will say, like, yes, he projects a good image on this. I think his record of fighting the Human Rights Tribunal on indigenous uh, child welfare funding is less than honorable. And I can't ascribe to him any good motives on that. Um, but on the other hand, like I think he wants to be seen to do the right thing, which I think is different from trying to do the right thing. That's my take anyway. So, to be honest, I don't know enough about the, the court case and why the government is fighting and their stated positions and things like that. But to, to attribute a generally positive motive towards his actions, I, I think this is their way of saying, listen, we've been trying to fix problems through INAC, perhaps perhaps not the problems you're referring to, but they're trying to fix problems through INAC as it exists, and they've said, that's not working, let's try and change something and see if it works. That being said, I think it's sort of a risk for them, um, because reorganizing a department with two years left in your mandate... It's a big undertaking. ...is a huge, huge undertaking. This is a department that has a very insular culture within the public service that is very... It's kind of a... Yeah, it's not very accountable it's not used to being too closely scrutinized frankly so i don't know i personally think this is not going to solve the problems uh but yeah that's you know neither here nor there on that i guess i am willing to watch and wait that's entirely fair i mean we are see what happens i i think the most interesting thing um from my perspective will be timing wise and to see how much air the reorganization of the department takes and yeah. when they're actually up on their feet and running, I think will be an interesting point to see. Yeah. Because if it takes a year and three quarters to get there, which it very well might, then this has all largely been for naught in terms of yes. the campaign cycle. Unless they win another election, in which case they are, they get another shot, another kick at the can. Of course. Uh, okay, so that, is there anything else about the cabinet shuffle you want to talk about? Uh, no, I think that's the main one. I would note that Bartis Shager is still doing double duty as House Leader. And that other very demanding job, the Minister of Small Business and Tourism. And the Minister of Small Business and Tourism, and she's been getting some airtime. Sorry, for... guys, the, the intern appears to be on strike. Uh, we're just going to pause recording. I'm going to feed him, and uh, we'll be right back. Okay, the uh, we are back. The intern has been fed. Uh, Tiana and I actually got into an interesting uh, argument while I was feeding uh, the intern about uh, the blood ban. Uh, just sort of pursuant to why the government can't do things it says it's going to do uh, on the indigenous file. And uh, we were talking about the blood ban. And uh, Chan, you want to take us off on uh, how we got into this and what the what the deal is? Yeah, so w- basically how this came up is we were talking about why the government sort of acts in certain inexplicable ways. For instance, with the funding of um, indigenous children's education. And one of the campaign promises of the Liberal government was to end the, bland, the, the ban on, uh, is well, it LGBT or yeah. is it just L- LGBT? I believe so. Or it's do- gay men, actually. Gay men. Yeah. Uh, maybe it's more specific. Please correct us if we're wrong. Uh, donation of blood. And the Liberal government promised to end this, and they got into government, and they've been absolutely silent on the issue. They, they did do something. They changed the eligibility, eligibility period down to, like, a year of abstinence from, I believe, unlimited before uh, that. Oh, yes. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you're a monk, that is great. Uh, otherwise, not so good. Um, 
So the the question that or I just have no game, I suppose, also possible. The question that has to come up here. So sort of the reflexive position is oh, like liberals are in power, they're backing down on their promises, blah 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 blah. However, you have to from from the government's perspective and having been in government, you have to sort of think of what the reasons, yeah. what the rationale for doing yeah. this is. Yeah. If you're the government, you say, listen, we're in power. Uh, we want to do this change. We promised it. This is a community that uh, community and a group of voters that like us. We want to get in their good books, and we promise to do this. Uh, relatively speaking, the figures I've seen for it, it, it costs uh, maybe ten million dollars. It's it's reasonably a small yeah. amount. In government terms, that's nothing. Um, however, the liberals have not made this change. So why haven't they? Well, they made a change, but or yeah. they they haven't made the change promised. Yeah. So why haven't they? Is there a vocal group opposed to it? No. No, that it seems like no. The preponderance of public evidence states that there's no reason to have this ban. It should be lifted. It's yeah. from the era of uh, the gay uh, AIDS like scare yeah. in, in the 1980s. Um, and so it's carrying over prejudices from this era. So... So all of that sounds good, but again, it comes back to, so why hasn't the government changed it? Yeah. And I, I liken it a little bit to the observance of black holes. <laughs> yes, that's that's a good comparison, actually. Yeah, Which is, if, if you're familiar with how black holes are observed, it's by noticing the bending of light around a spot of no light, effectively. I'm, yeah. I'm bastardizing the science here. But that's sort of how I see some of these issues in government. Well, you I, don't see what's going on on the inside, but you sort of see the like shadow it casts. The shadow it casts. You see policy. things bending around yeah. it. You're seeing a government that something internally that has obviously not been released publicly yeah. has changed their platform against all odds and changed their position and has them back down on a promise of something that seems so good to do on the outside. Yeah. One, one of the common uh, things you'll hear from bureaucrats... Um, Oh, at least during the change of government, is that the incoming government is so dumb. They they have to reassess all their campaign commitments. They had no idea what they were talking about. Their yeah. funding was out of whack. They misestimated that like yeah. dozens of things on every single policy proposal. Yeah, which brings us roundaboutly back to that whole PBO thing we had a couple months ago. We're like, oh, what it would be like if opposition parties actually had access to the resources the government has to cost promises. And the reality is that it's quite tricky. But anyway, sorry to interrupt with that. Carry on. Absolutely. Or one of the things that will happen with the uh, parliamentarians uh, security oversight committee um, is going to be that you'll have, for the first time, someone in opposition who is briefed on some of the things going on behind the scenes in terms of the security intelligence community. Mm -hmm. Um, so that'll be, and that's an area historically where people have promised, uh, we're, we're going to change everything. We're going to abolish X, we're going to do Y. And then they get in and they see the evidence and they see the bureaucrat's justification for these programs and they back down quickly on their promises. Yeah. Uh, an the liberals did a similar thing with access to information and extending to ministers' offices. and uh, This happens yeah. all the time in the United States with uh, the Democrats. When Obama got into power, did he close Guantanamo Bay? Yeah. the Patriot Act? Did he do X, Y, Z? And the answer is there are compelling arguments on the inside that aren't part of the electoral equation. Yeah, or Obama's just a coward, which is also like a live possibility. But you can you can put your hate for liberals out there. Um, my my point, effectively, not not to uh, stretch this too far, but is to say that 
when a government is acting incredibly irrationally, it's always worth looking for the black hole and, and pondering what could possibly be changing their mind yeah. and what could be influencing policy on the inside. Etienne, hashtag believes bureaucrats. It's, uh... <laughs> so what I'm saying, I'm saying when you see evidence that the government has been changed by bureaucrats, question yeah. what they have. Well, and I think if we go back to like why the government is fighting the indigenous child welfare stuff in court, it's because had they not done that it would be a very expensive commitment to actually like close funding gaps in education and health and provide services that you know we would provide under the Canada Health Act through provincial services would be an expensive undertaking for the government i mean you can say this is the treaty right and that they have as as you know treaty people and also as citizens of canada but or you can say like we don't want to do this because it would be very expensive and we already have a big deficit that's a political choice and like you're, you're right. Like I think you do make a good point about the black holes, and uh, I don't know what goes into the, the whole process with the blood ban. Uh, I would actually be very interested to know. I'm sure there's someone's a tipped this. So we'll have to look into that. Let me let me provide one one more point on this, particularly having to do with justice. And when when you talk to justice officials, one of the things they'll say, as in officials of the Department of Justice, correct? Okay, as Just opposed to law justice law officials. enforcement like officials. Like Batman, is he a justice official? <laughs> yes. hey, carry on. I actually I'm more like, of an unofficial, I guess. Batman is not my guy. Um, when you talk to justice officials, really, he's a billionaire. You guys love those guys. <laughs> one of the <laughs> he came out against mandatory minimums a long That's time true. ago. We don't we don't talk to him anymore. Um, one of the things that uh, you'll hear justice officials say, and I always found this to be a very interesting concept, is uh, democracy deserves a defense, uh, which is to say that when a new government is elected and some group challenges that government on laws that were enacted by a previous government, a government that the present government perhaps does not ideologically agree with. Say, actually, let's use that example of mandatory minimums. Sure. If I were to challenge a mandatory minimum right now and go to the federal court with it, justice lawyers would be there to argue in defense of mandatory minimums. These could be mandatory minimums, that the uh, Trudeau government yeah. had plans to strike down forthcoming legislation. Yeah, well, this is like the controversy over like pot arrests and prosecutions as well, too, partially. We'll come back to that because we're going to have a big talk about cannabis. Later, a but. little bit. But so a lot of people, and it's sort of intuitive to say, well, why is justice, why don't they just no-show at court and let me win and strike it down that way? And the argument that comes up time and time again from justice is democracy deserves a defense that laws that were passed by the parliament of the day until they be, are until they are struck down yeah. until they're changed should be defended similar to like innocent or uh, innocent or proven guilty they should be defended in the court of law they should be given a fair trial and they should be defended even by a government that yeah. doesn't support presumed them. active until repealed yeah lest you start legislating laws by having People challenge them in court, yeah. and governments not sending lawyers. Or, like, the other situation that you could have, let's take pot as an example, like, if they had stopped prosecuting people for pot offenses, but then never got around to legalizing pot. Like, you'd then just have, like, a de facto decriminalization that no one would have really asked for, uh, and that would have created, like, an odd legal vortex. In fact, your mandatory minimums example is probably better, in well, the sense that, like... If you are doing this in and in anticipation of legislation that never comes, you've created an odd legal vacuum. Yes and no. Um, so there is a limited degree to which the justice minister. This is a little outside of my wheelhouse, I'll admit. To which the justice minister and to which the minister of public safety can advise 
RCMP or the Public Prosecution Service what priority should be, say. Sure. And they should say, you know, prosecutions aren't a priority. Obama did a similar thing sure. uh, with DACA, not to get into this. Yeah. Um, you can listen to the weeds if you want to get But, the, but trap effectively what he said, he said, uh, prosecuting these cases will not be a priority. You put yeah. this on the back burner. You make yeah. this the last thing you deal with. Yeah. Everything else is more serious. Yeah. And it's sort of similar because the Minister of Public Safety can't tell the RCMP what to do. Yeah. At all. No. He, he can give them policy direction and guidance and, sure. and things along those lines. But he can't tell them what cases to prosecute and which ones not to. Sure. As long as, the, as long as the law of the day stands. Yeah. There, there is a certain barrier between them. Um, what the government can do is it can say, listen, guys, we're not really that serious about pot anymore. Um, let's ease up on that if, yeah. if you so choose. And generally, there's okay. sort of respectful agreement to do that. What I would say is the problem with the legal vortex argument that you presented is that we do have laws on the books that yeah. are illegal and that are no longer enforced, and they that just become family Well, they are, they are legal. Like, that is a legal vortex, right? Yeah, they, for some issues, that seems to be fine. They become the zombie laws. For yeah. instance, bongs are illegal. Yeah. The public sale and display of bongs, I, I believe... Oh, geez, well, one, Bank Street would... Uh... One thing I learned during the Cannabis Committee, and this was an issue in the 90s, um, was that bongs were considered illegal. Yeah. And gradually, people stopped caring. It's sort of like dispensaries today. Well, it's also like, you know, if you talk about, like sort of phantom laws like actually the liberals did try to close a bunch of those they're they're in the process yeah, of. like with the bestiality stuff and whatnot uh, bestiality crime comics uh apparently were illegal at some point oh, oh yeah because it's very salacious some, yeah. something along those lines no so that's that's interesting anyway that was a very unplanned aggression on this whatever this turned out to be but uh, uh nevertheless i think a pretty good one so, so we'll, uh, we'll keep that shall we take that into uh cannabis Shadow cabinet first, because we're gonna cabinet in the shadow cabinet. Come on, sure. everyone knows we're gonna take a trip to the shadow realm, <laughs> to the shadow cabinet, uh, where the shadow king Andrew Shear. All right, kick, kick me off. What are your thoughts on the conservative shadow cabinet? Okay, Rob? so I thought mostly it's like not don't, bad. Don't start with Paul yet. I wasn't going to. I was say, gonna say Lisa Ray nice, was a, Lisa Ray nice was a good choice. Before you say a mean thing, Lisa Ray was a good choice. I think as is she deputy leader. I believe that's the case. Oh, that's a great choice. She's great. Um, Aaron O'Toole as Justice Critic, I believe. Foreign Affairs. Foreign Affairs, thank you. Uh, also a good choice. I think his... He, yeah, we didn't talk about the Cotter stuff too much over the summer because I think neither of us are terribly interested in it. I thought he didn't have his finest hour on there, but in general is... I would say he had the finest hour of any conservative on the issue. I will give him that. Um, but there you go. I actually thought Aaron O'Toole was very good. Um, I, that's what I mean. Like, I think the argument he was making was specious, but he was making it well, and I think in good faith. So Yeah, I, I truly appreciated that. Um, and it wasn't like a rabid sort of like argument. Like, it was actually like pretty considered, but I'll, I'll give him that. I think he was the best of the bunch on, on that particular issue. So a shout out to him and his defense of that issue um, is actually sort of podcasting related is that he went on the Docket podcast. Indeed. Uh, which is uh, Michael Spratt, who's actually one of the people who testified at the Cannabis Committee this week. And Emily his Tamman. wife, Emily Tamman. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, okay. Who's a several-time NDP candidate, as well as Louise Arbor's daughter and a constitutional law professor and former Justice Department lawyer. Correct. You yes. just spit out her resume well, very quickly. I worked on her by-election campaign very briefly <laughs> as a volunteer, so I had to learn this stuff. And they... Um, invited Aaron O'Toole onto the podcast to make the counter-arguments, and he gladly went yeah. and went out of his way and had a proper I have to argument say, about it. He was your guy. I mean, like, I, I you just, like, 
he's so clearly head and shoulders, like intellect wise and like general geniality above Andrew Shearer that I was just like, how did you guys not pick this guy? But whatever. Um, I've got my own leadership races to worry about, I guess. Wait, all right, back to the shadow cabinet. <laughs> shadow cabinet. Okay, so those are my two picks. I want your hot takes. Those are my two picks that I think were considered you're, and good. You got those in your fantasy conservative team pool. Yeah, I think they're they're. I think like everyone thinks they're pretty good. Um, Michael Chong, I thought was really funny. He's minister of urban affairs, which no, to me is shadow minister. Sh- yeah, yeah, sorry, shadow critic for urban affairs, which to me is critic for liberal outreach. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, you know, urban. That's where the liberals are. Um, I think the dumb pick. But isn't he the only candidate that lives on a farm? That is true. Like he's urban and rural. Or the only yeah. conservative candidate who lives on a farm. He's, did you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think the really dumb pick is Pierre Polyev as finance critic, because he is possibly. I mean, no, this is really stiff competition. But he's possibly the dumbest guy on their bench. So let me apply black hole theory. I mean, black hole theory is that he's an attack dog, and Andrew Shear likes attack dogs. No, he, like, no, you don't think so? No, black hole theory. Because Polyev like showed himself up as not actually knowing anything about government finances, like very early on. All right, and he like misunderstood how interest rates work. He had a little bit of a rough start. Bla- <laughs> not knowing how interest rates work when you're the finance critic is a pretty rough start. Black hole theory here states that there is something about. Pierre Polyev. That, that drives is, liberals crazy? That is known to Andrew Scheer and has influenced Andrew Scheer's decision-making that is unknown to outside observers. I think it's he makes people mad. I think that's literally it. I think he makes people mad, and conservatives know they fundraise well when they get people mad. That's, I think it's as simple as that. That's one theory. Okay. I, I'm going to propose an alternative take, and, and perhaps... Um, I, I mean, many. Might I mean, he didn't pick him for me. his expertise. Didn't pick him for a sense of humor. That's for <laughs> sure. He could actually be quite a charming guy, and that's actually my point. Um, so I've seen Pierre Polyev speak a couple of times um, to sort of conservative audiences, and both times I hesitate to say he was brilliant. Effectively, his speeches were well delivered. Um, in both cases, I believe he wrote the speeches himself. They were very well crafted and well considered. And that side of Pierre Polyev, I have never seen in the house. Okay. I've never seen in question period. Fun story about Pierre Polyev, actually, which I think serves to reinforce your point, is the first time I met Pierre Polyev was when I stepped out of the elevator on the sixth floor of the House of Commons, or the, the center block of Parliament, rather, not the House of Commons. Yeah. Um, and which is the floor of the parliamentary restaurant because I was on my way to a reception where they were serving Swedish meatballs because why would you not go to a reception serving Swedish meatballs at any rate uh, I am very drunk at the this point. Ikea reception exactly it was actually Swedes alternative energy stuff anyway it was, kind of, <laughs> yeah. it was pretty good I just ate their food um, this is what you do if you work on the hill um, at any rate so I get off this elevator which you know like you never know what you're going to step into when you get off an elevator in Parliament Hill and I am very drunk as are the people with me and we step off the elevator into a crowd of senior citizens to whom Pierre Polyev is giving a tour of uh, center block. And we are just, like, bewildered. Like, <laughs> this is just... Like, and he was, he was crushing it, frankly. I mean, I see what you're saying. Like, he was, he was delivering the shit out of this tour. Like, uh, and they were lapping it up, like, these old guys. Like, oh, man, they were loving it. So, uh, yeah, no, I can see it. And then I, from there, I went and ate some meatballs. But, uh... Yeah, I was actually like, holy shit, Pierre Polyev is human. Like, it blew my mind. And I can understand that, having seen him both 
in Parliament and behind the scenes, yeah. and he's a lot I, better. I bet like Paul Calandra actually makes really good pizza. <laughs> 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 his kimchi is phenomenal no Pierre Polyev um, has shown flashes of brilliance yeah. and it's finance, always though. been behind the scenes and so we'll see we'll he see gave if him, he like, the most... evolves I mean you're like if you're Andrew Shear, you're counting on a very fast evolution here because he's thrown him into this tax fight uh, which to be honest I think actually does like in my more cynical reading of he makes liberals mad I think he is the perfect guy for this because the conservative position on this is just complete disinformation about the tax changes. I'm, I'm not, only get I'm not, it. not sure that's true. I think it is. I think it's. I'm not sure that's true. I think it is. Uh, but it's more or less complete disinformation on these tax changes. And Pierre Polyev has no qualms about this. This is his mo. Uh, and like, what's always what he's been good at is just hammering the like utter bullshit Harper lines. And if that's the sheer playbook, this is a guy who can run that playbook really well. Well, he has to be smiling while he does it. Well, yeah, obviously. No. Yeah. Not, not, to, not to credit your point here, not, not to get into the tax debate. I, I will actually make one diversion here. Oh, let, let, okay, instead of me saying that they are the, their strategy is bad and based on disinformation, let us say it makes very strategic use of the rhetorical talents of Pierre Polyev. Let's put it that way. Sure. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll let you get by with that one. Um... Just, just as a complete aside, uh, watching Question Period today, it was sort of interesting to see the conservative approach. Folks, we got a we got a fire truck going by. <laughs> okay, more or less. Ah, it's okay. It's gone. Um, the the joys of downtown living, folks. The conservative approach to Question Period today, I think, was notable. Um, obviously, the biggest item on the agenda was the tax changes. Um, and those who don't regularly oh, watch we got the fire truck. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, this must be a big one. It's two fire trucks. Yeah, we're keeping this in. We're keeping this in. Okay, carry okay. on. Okay, sorry. Those who regularly don't watch um, Question Period. Most people. Uh, most people may not be aware that in Question Period, you're not allowed to refer to any of the members by name. And so you can't say, you can't say Justin Trudeau, you can't say Bill Morneau, etc., etc., um, one of the sort of crafty ways... The, the honorable member for blank or the minister of blank. Correct. Yeah. You refer to them by position. It's sort of a long-standing uh, tradition in Westminster systems. Westminster. Oh, you up. always do this. Shut <laughs> up. <laughs> um, and so today, what they did instead was they laced every single question effectively on the tax changes with an ending referring to Morneau Chappelle... Which is one of the organizations It's that, a company obviously. Yeah, it's, it's a company It's publicly traded That Morneau got Or his family name is <sighs> on top of I'm sorry guys We got a third fire truck here <laughs> Yep, okay, alright This is really good This is some really top, top shelf podcasting guys All that to say It was a crafty way to get uh, Morneau's name into every single question and initially, well, and the, remind people that he's like this, like wealthy yeah. oligarch baron, because it's his dad's company that founded it. Yes, but, and, and like he's like inherited king of inherited wealth. <laughs> like this doesn't look good. And so every question was, why are you making this change to small business owners? Unreal, and not to. Yeah. Okay. So we got that's number five, I believe. Okay. Big day. Yeah. This must be a big fire, guys. Okay. Sorry about that. Carry on. <laughs> So fire, or not fire, taxes. 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 Yeah. 
Tax fires? I mean, it is a tax fire. <laughs> They're burning the money. you got to be fucking kidding me. <laughs> okay, this is officially, I think, uh, the best episode we've ever done. Uh, I think we'll just uh, wrap it there. Uh, no, but I think that, that gives us a good segue into uh, cannabis. Uh, think of those were like police sirens, and that's like very thematic. Okay, so carry on, uh, Tan. You can get us started on cannabis. Okay, so let's let's talk cannabis. Um, most notably, recently, uh, perhaps that the not the house, the house was reconvened September eighteenth, as the Senate did on September nineteenth. But a full week ahead of time, the house convened or committees of the house convened to study two uh, piece of legislation. Yes. And it's... One was cannabis and the other was like transport? The Transportation yeah. Act. Yeah. Um, which tells you something about the importance of these uh, pieces of legislation um, in terms of the government timeline. Yeah. Uh, to speak to the Transportation Act, it's a fairly dense piece of legislation and a fairly important one if you're operating a plane, train, or boat. Um, I know next to nothing about the legislation. It refers to inter-switching a lot. Um, like trains. Yeah, it's some, some train-related things. I know that it has uh, some sort of deadline attached to it that it was actually supposed to have passed um, in the summer and that the government has basically blown the deadline on this piece of legislation and some of the existing stuff has expired. Okay. So it's sort of operating in this black hole, not to use that term too liberally, um, a lot of black and then the other one uh, that they convened almost 40 hours of committee testimony or of witness testimony at committee at the health committee this past week was cannabis. Uh, cannabis is split into two pieces of legislation. C45, the Cannabis Act, and C46 doesn't have a short title to my knowledge, but it's the uh, piece of legislation going through Justice Committee that relates to the drug-impaired driving offenses. Mm-hmm. So they've separated off the drug-impaired changes to the criminal code from the Cannabis Act, which is the broader piece of legislation that covers a lot of the other parts of criminalization. Mm -hmm. And so they heard from, I think, 30 to 40 witnesses uh, at the Health Committee, 40 hours of testimony. Um, It was a pretty interesting week, all told. Um, Basically, the recurring theme from a lot of witnesses was that either... Um, cannabis is very dangerous if you look at the health uh, evidence, um, particularly to youth, that the government is going too fast. You heard this from uh, stakeholders such as every police organization out there. The um, best people. A, yeah. lot of, a lot of doctors, the province of Saskatchewan. 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 They actually, yeah. So, okay. Yeah. This is actually a good teachable moment. So, most people who are not from Saskatchewan grow up their whole lives saying Saskatchewan, never thinking anything of it. And then I only found this out when uh, my partner moved to Saskatchewan uh, to do to do grad school. And then I think like, the first phone call I had with her was like, oh, how's, how's the first day in Saskatchewan? And she was like, it's actually like everyone here says Saskatchewan. And I was like, holy shit, I never knew. So ever since then, I've been a real evangelist about getting people to say Saskatchewan. There you go. So now you guys know. Say Saskatchewan. That's brought us here today. uh, So Saskatchewan was, in fact, the only uh, province that sent someone to testify at committee, um, with the exception of some health officials from, like, I think Ontario had a regional health expert there. Um, But it was actually someone from the Justice Department of Saskatchewan. Um, And he made some very interesting points. 
the one takeaway I really had from his testimony was the problem with this legislation. So the legislation was tabled in the House in, don't quote me on this, I'd say April. Um, April yeah, or, that's right, yes. April it was or, a little before 420, as I recall. Yeah, a- April or May. And then it passed first reading, second reading, and then it, right reading, and right then it, it went to committee just as... Uh, summer closed, and so committee studies started uh, this fall. Yes. But all of that to say is the federal government, from the time of tabling the legislation to the legalization, which is set for July 20, uh, 2018, July 1st, 2018, although they've sort of walked back on the Canada Day. I think that's probably wise. Uh, at least framing it as linked with Canada Day. Yeah, that's probably smart. Um, is it's been a year and a half, and the point that, Manit- or that Saskatchewan has made is... This year of leeway does not fit at all with our legislative cycle. Yeah. Yeah, because the like, sittings in other provinces might not coincide with, like... They might not coincide, and in Saskatchewan, apparently... I, I'm, I'm roughly paraphrasing this from what I remember. Legislation is introduced in Saskatchewan in a one-month sitting between November and December. Mm-hmm. Uh, they reconvene for debate um, over winter, spring... And I think the legislation ultimately ends up getting passed or royal assent or something along those lines, like a, quite a few months later. Yeah, well, Saskatchewan, to keep in mind, is very much a like farming province where the reality of having farmer legislators was quite prevalent until fairly recently. Yeah, so and even then, w- you actually still have quite a few. So the system works around yes, the, the, the har- calendar, harvest, system. which is what many legislatures calendars are i mean they're, they're sort of a throwback to that sort of agricultural time period we need to have to include time for harvest for sowing and for travel back and forth um the federal one doesn't really reflect that as much anymore i think it's become more attuned to the modern business cycle but uh the saskatchewan one yeah like uh, many provincial legislatures especially i think ones in like big farming provinces uh, who have had many farmer legislators are sort of still work around that calendar. So all of this is to say is when you when you table a piece of federal legislation as expansive as legalization of cannabis, one of the things that had to be considered or should have at least been considered is the impact on all the other provinces and their legislative cycles and at what point they're able to start legislating on this. Are they going to start their legislation with just a tabled bill in... Uh, in April with just the act? Are they going to wait until it's passed formally? And the answer is there's no luxury here. There's there's no leeway. Um, all the provinces are scrambling to now produce legislation, get it tabled in this uh, in their respective fall settings yeah. in order to get something passed in time for it. And then the other factor to consider in is this legislation also impacts all levels of government, so it also implicates municipalities as yeah. well. So... I would go so far as to say this is perhaps the single most complex piece of legislation that the liberal government is going to um, pass slash introduce um, yeah, during its entire life cycle. Yeah, I, I don't think it can be overstated how impactful, how many areas it covers from justice to building codes to employment standards to labor to literally anything related to people. Um, you're seeing universities come out. I think it was McMaster University recently that, um, in anticipation, has changed their smoking bylaws on campus. Yeah. Well, um, you know what's the other, and you probably know this better than most people, is that the immense complications this introduces with border crossing. So that was actually uh, a very popular theme two days ago. Yeah. Um, two days ago? No, it was, it was actually or, yesterday. Yeah, recently so, anyway. 
Trudeau was asked about this uh, during his presser, and then Ralph Goodale was asked about it um, both in the House of Commons by Thomas Mulcair as well as by Don Davies, NDP MP, in the late night sitting of uh, HESA, which is the Health Committee, on Tuesday. And the question is as follows. Um, historically, people uh, going from Canada to the United States have occasionally been asked by CBP, Customs Border Patrol officers, whether they smoked marijuana. Yeah. And if they had a mar- marijuana cannabis related offenses on their record, they weren't allowed in generally without a waiver, complicated process. Um, but there are cases of people admitting to smoking it, having no charges, yeah. and then being turned away from the border. Yeah. Um, so the question is, so what's the plan come legalization when CBP agents ask whether or not individuals smoke cannabis because they're not supposed to lie to border security officers? So of course, yeah, everyone does. Um, lie, lie to border security officers. <laughs> good policy they're they're not supposed to and then you see a justice department and administration in the united states um that is cracking and if there's like a thing about jeff sessions is he, he seems chill you know like he seems chill about a wide variety of things so cbp is actually speaking of sorry i hate to do this but you got you know the the jeff sessions quote with regard to marijuana is that he the, thought about getting the KKK involved with the KKK, was cool <laughs> until they but, smoked marijuana but it turned out yeah. those guys are all smoking dope so so Jeff Sessions has yeah has spoken out, elf. spoken out strongly against cannabis and cannabis use and wants to sort of reinvigorate the illegalization of cannabis and is pressuring states to not legalize cannabis. Um, so so this is one of the outstanding questions. Yeah, and it's it's a very real concern as yep. to how um, CBP is going to deal with Canadians who admit how to smoking. This, how could this impact beyond the border, Etienne? That's cannabis. the real question. Well. So now, do we really uh, want to get no, into no, that? I, I, don't, I don't want to get into it. But, <laughs> but this this is all to say that one of the government's uh, initiatives b- between liberal or conservative has always been the thinning of border with the United States. Yeah. Which is to say, introducing programs most people will be familiar with Nexus. Yeah. To make crossing the border quicker, more efficient, because of the billions of dollars of trade that go across yeah. the border every and day. And actually, because Stephen Harper wanted us to be the fifty-first state. Yeah, that, I'm, I'm yeah, sure that's yeah. that's why. No, he he really. He was, I love the people. He was like, really mm-hmm. banking for uh, yeah. Puerto Rico first, yeah. and then and then Canada was going to be fifty-second. Yeah, and then we get Turks and Caicos too. Just remember. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, so all, all of that is to say, um, there's a lot of issues that have yet to be resolved, and the government's response on this was sort of lackluster. It was sort of, don't lie to border security. Um, this is an ongoing I mean, issue. Let's be real. We're, was, we're not going to tell uh, CBP how to do their job. It was shrug emoji. Like, it was the, the shrug guy. I think what they're sort of hoping for is that it will just be inadvisable for CBP to do their job by asking people if they smoke cannabis and turning them away at the border because there will be such a preponderance of people admitting to it that it will just become unreasonable. I, mm-hmm. I honestly think that's their strategy. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, it would be just ridiculous at that, some point. That it's not going to become a regular question and they're going to turn away 50% of Canadian visitors? Like, yeah. I, I don't think that makes sense. And I don't think sense. pot smoking rates will go up that high, but yeah, like, the point stands that it would just become quickly an absurdity, like, administratively. So, so to finish off uh, the cannabis news, I, I could talk at length about the committee and sort of some of the crazier testimony. We may do that in other time because I have a great idea for an episode. Sure. So, yeah. Um, let's talk about, uh, very briefly, about what's going on on the provincial fronts. Um, a lot of provinces uh, spearheaded by Manitoba have tried to ask the government for an extension. Yeah. Uh, the federal government has generally turned the turn it down and has deferred. 
Um, there was a recent m meeting of justice ministers in Vancouver this week where that was on the agenda, where cannabis was the big thing to talk about. Coming out of that meeting, uh, several justice ministers said we would meet the cannabis legalization deadline. Uh, BC has stated that, Newfoundland has stated that, Ontario has stated that, Quebec apparently has no idea what's going on. Um, all the reports coming out of their caucus meeting, the Liberal uh, Quebec Liberal Caucus meeting, are sort of mixed. That the caucus is split on whether or not they want to go ahead with uh, public distribution or private through dépanneurs, which are convenience stores, or through a or a provincial retailer. Yeah. So Quebec has no idea what's going on. BC said. We're a very mature state when it comes to cannabis. <laughs> when it comes to cannabis use, yeah, no problem. But they yeah. haven't shown any legislative signs. Well, to be fair, they did go through a government transition just recently, so that does but, slow things down. But that again is yeah. my point in terms of the uh, challenges of legislating on yeah. this. In terms of deadlines, you're accommodating ten other calendars. Your ten and other calendars, eleven, and twelve, whatever. BC hasn't had a functional government for like the past six months, <laughs> so that sucks. Um, Ontario has been the first out of the gate to make an announcement on cannabis. Uh, they came out and said, we are going to make the cannabis, they haven't named it yet, but I'll call it the Cannabis Control Board of Ontario. We're going to regulate cannabis the same way we regulate alcohol. The way that everyone loves every and thinks is great. Everyone hates and I think everyone has been critical of. And it's sort of ironic because they're, yeah, the LCBO is working so great, even though they've been moving themselves to open up LCBO sales yeah. of beer and wine at convenience, or not convenience stores, grocery yeah, stores. Yeah, and if anyone who listens to podcasts a lot knows, if there's one thing that Chan and I agree <laughs> on, it's that Ontario's liquor regime is just needs to be like burned to the ground. Perhaps the only thing funnier or maybe worse than Ontario's uh, announcement on Ontario has also made two other announcements. Uh, they've recently said they expect the price of cannabis in Ontario to ten be bucks a gram. Ten bucks a gram, and they've also announced uh, people are going to get that ta obnoxious. People are going to get that tattooed on themselves. By the way, just to let you know. God only, I hope no one does. Someone will. And then perhaps the, the worst announcement of all was New Brunswick. New Brunswick came out with a hilarious announcement where everyone was watching expecting them to announce their system and they said we have made a prior or a, a crown corporation we've incorporated a crown corporation and that crown corporation has signed license or uh, purchase agreements from two cannabis uh licensed producers who are licensed producers in the medical system um and they will sell us four thousand and five thousand kilograms of cannabis a year for two years under the system. And then they put the licensed producers up on stage and gave them the podium to talk, which was sort of hilarious. It's not something you would really I mean, New Brunswick see is, in a federal announcement. New Brunswick is the land of perhaps... We should, honestly, it would be fun to do a New Brunswick politics episode sometime because I followed it very closely and have a good sense of the history of it when I lived there. Um, it is possibly the land of the greatest and most visible public policy failures in the history of Canadian Federation. Uh, from the the great Brooklyn automobile to uh, oh geez like there's just there's so many to, to choose from the Frank McKenna miracle that sort of turned to shit in five years anyway whatever we could it's just it's a beautiful I'm, beautiful I'm no, land I'm, of people who have no idea what they're doing I'm unfamiliar with these uh, suffice it to say it was sort of just a hilarious announcement and they said basically we've decided who we're gonna buy our cannabis so so from. let me get this straight so they're making a crown corporation correct okay. 
They've made that a is, crown corporation that, is buying, that they will tell you nothing about. That it's buying its entire supply. It has signed MOUs with two licensed producers. Okay, so it's buying its entire supply from two suppliers. No, okay. In your One asterisk on that. At least two suppliers. They okay. said we're still open to conversations with others. I see, but was there any indication to whether those would be local? Because my understanding is that those two were New Brunswick located. They both currently have operations in New Brunswick. Okay, so that might be a condition of this. Uh, I mean, that would be very New Brunswick. So. There, there was also some small, they'll give 2% of the proceeds of sales to social programs, which was just sort of funny from, let, let me take your left-wing perspective. I would say that signing in the MOU, rather than just you know, increasing the tax or doing something along those lines, they're saying, yeah, or negotiating a slightly better rate. They said, no, you're going to voluntarily give two percent, and this way the corporations, the licensed producers, get to like count this as, I guess, Tax charity, donation, maybe. charity. I mean, of some would it be a donation? I, That's interesting, actually. I, think I, I honestly to, don't know, yeah. but it, it sure sounds better than we're going to tax you two percent higher to you give two percent of your earnings to. Yeah. Our school system for the D.A.R.E. program or something. Yeah, which actually D.A.R.E., by the way, I know, program I know, I know you're going to go there. We, we can't dive into every... Okay. Into every... <laughs> Live glasses, by the way. <laughs> Fake. Let, <laughs> let me tell you. So I think that... that Bananas, one, potassium is not that high. Uh, it, I mean... That Calcium and broccoli, not that good. Broccoli's good otherwise, though. It's the delicious herb. Anyway, um, I think that'll probably do it for us today. I think that that's a good good set of ground we've covered for our first uh, first little warm up stretch before we get into the parliamentary session. Really, uh, so uh, we'll we'll see you guys next week. Don't forget to rate and review on iTunes, all that good stuff. On on the reviewing note, particularly, I, I want to reemphasize this. I, I haven't made a comment on reviews recently, so I'd like to just say we're doing great. Good good work, team. I haven't looked in a while. Um, However, there's another podcast, and I actually don't want to promote them. They're called Political Traction. They're put on by a lobbying firm out of Toronto. And they have about 30-some-odd reviews. So all, all I'm saying is if two random schmoes in their, uh, in their metaphys- or metaphorical basement could uh, yeah. get more reviews, that, that would be great. It would look great, yeah. It would look which, good. Which firm is that? Uh, navigator, navigator? Yeah. yeah. Okay. The bad guys, yeah. Okay. They're uh, not the bad guys. Okay. Anyway, they're, they're a good firm. And they actually, I, I will plug this. They have a podcast uh, called Legalize that goes through some of the finer points of cannabis legalization, although it was recorded prior to the tabling of the legislation. I see. So a lot of it is speculative, um, but still very good. I see. Navigator is responsible for such hits as uh, defending uh, Jim Prentice after his uh, CEO's press, re- er, press we're, release. We're not, we're not doing this. And we're not, uh, John we're not Gomeshi doing this. No, and like, not, all the good folks. Anyway, that will do this. it for us today. Uh, shout out to the good folks at Navigator. Thank you. And uh, we will see you guys next week. Bye, everyone. Bye.